Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Bad Manners. This is the podcast that takes you inside Britain's stately homes and tells all the tales the guidebooks don't. My name is Tom Horton, and I'll be your host. As a comedian, I'm not really bothered about the facts and figures. I just want the juicy stuff. So I'm on a mission to find out the frightening, filthy, and downright jaw-dropping stories of these stately homes and the people in them. Welcome back to Bad Manners. Now, looking at the title of this episode, you may have a good crib as to what we'll be talking about. Yeah, that's right. I use the word crib. No big deal. Cribbing is just figuring out words or phrases that appear in a cipher based on partial knowledge of the plain text. It's simple, really. I've also broken an Enigma code, so don't worry about it. Okay, I'll come clean. I only know all of this because Tom and Erica, Bletchley's historical superheroes, told me. Before I came here, I knew nothing about this place. Other than it had something to do with that movie, The Imitation Game. If I'm being totally honest, when I first came here, I thought it was just Benedict Cumberbatch on a typewriter doing it all himself. That must annoy you guys then. If, when you watch The Imitation Game the amount of misconceptions that that has put forward into the public. I mean, Doctor, you have crossed your arms in, as if you are ready to explode. <laughs> you are looking fired up. Uh, I've said about it, the film has some historical shortcomings. <laughs> yeah, sure. That is, a, that is a, what a very English reaction. How wrong has it got it? Well, the, the process shown in the film didn't happen. The chronology shown in the film didn't happen. I think the most egregious sort of infelicity of the film is that it implies that Alan Turing is working with this spy, John Cancross. Right. They never worked together in real life, but also in the film, Turing discovers he's a spy and then keeps it to himself, which would make him a traitor. So I think that's quite a slander on him, which is completely unjustified by the historical record. Yeah. But aside from that, you know, the, all the details of the code-breaking in the film are pretty inaccurate, yeah. Sure. Egregious infelicity is the phrase I'm taking from that. That's yeah, absolutely yeah, wonderful. Very true. But very true. It's, we know did you watch it in the cinema by any chance? I did watch it in the cinema. Chucking your popcorn everywhere. Wow. No, back, I watched it back when I didn't know anything about Bletchley Park. Oh, really? <laughs> so young, so and naive. Thought, yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. I was so naive back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, um, a, it's a decently put together film, but you yeah, the know, cinematography the, you know the barest great. bit about the story and you, it, it's very hard to say, well, it was such a missed opportunity to tell the story properly. Can I fight the defensive corner on this film? You as can well? try, mate. I've, <laughs> You're a I've, braver person than I am. I've watched this film a couple of dozen times now, but it is 
as the story goes, as the film goes, it is absolutely gripping. If you haven't watched the film yet, watch it. It is really, really good. The acting is fantastic. The basic facts of it was wartime, Alan Turing, some of the characters' names are, are correct as well. And the sort of general gist of the secrecy of it, the importance of it, the sense of pride and duty that is involved in that is how it wants to stir the feelings in the audience is not too far from how our visitors feel when they're here on site and, and, and see the story being told in a more accurate manner. But I should also say that the popularity of the film, for it is a high quality production, has definitely helped people know the name of Bletchley Park. People are made yes. aware of what happened here, even if it's a slightly hinky version, and therefore they become more curious and they want to find out. So we've noticed... <laughs> and come here and get completely confused why? with why it's not anything like what they thought well, it was. why not see the film, be inspired, visit us, find the truth, go home informed, educated and entertained. So the film is something to be proud of, I think, for that. And also just popularising the name of Alan Turing, who recently was put on the £50 note. I mean, he is a recognisable yeah. personality. And I think the film, to some extent, has helped popularise him and his work and the tragedy of his life. And also just what an incredible human being he must have been, his genius. Mm -hmm. So I think for that, it's well worth a watch, even if you just have to, like Tom look away at some points for the historical inaccuracy. Sure. So it turns out Hollywood have fabricated elements of a true story for dramatic effect. Unbelievable. Next you'll be telling us Braveheart's riddled with historical inaccuracies, or Indiana Jones didn't find the Ark of the Covenant. Is anything real? What about Alan Turing? Surely they wouldn't misrepresent him. One of my problems with the imitation game and that portrayal of Alan Turing in that film is that he is portrayed as, as almost autistic. It's not quite stated outright, but he has this odd manner about him where he doesn't understand when people ask him to go to lunch. Um, the evidence just isn't there that Alan Turing was like that in real life. He was a sociable person. He was a sportsman. That's never in the film. He seemed to be well-liked and he got on with his colleagues. He was a, sometimes a bit difficult and a bit difficult to communicate with. He was never a fantastic communicator or manager. Um, and he had these big ideas and, 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 and struggled to, to tell people about them. But I don't think any of that evidence amounts to him being autistic. Right. I would also say, though, that there is no evidence that he wasn't. And we know that he had a personality that could sometimes, he could come across as awkward from time to time. And I know that um, people do believe nowadays that he must have been autistic. In the 1940s, things like autism just weren't recognised or given a label in that way. And so we just don't know either way. He would not have been diagnosed or, or represented himself in that particular way. So who are we to put that label on him? One thing the film did get right is that Alan Turing's work was the key to breaking the Enigma codes, thus cluing in the Allied forces into important Nazi strategy and movements, therefore saving millions of lives and shortening the war. Also his hair. They got the hair absolutely bang on. So all the inaccuracies, all the slander aside, what did Alan Jury actually do? Let's talk through actually his contribution, his time here at Bletchley. Doctor. He does four main things. Four main things. Okay. So he's part of a team working on Enigma at the start of the war, and he's a very important figure in that team. He arrives the day after war breaks out and starts work in one of the cottages in the stable yard. And there's yeah. a story that he, right. he um, made a working space up in the loft, which in this, in this former stable, and there was still a winch in place. He didn't like going to lunch, so people would uh, bring him sandwiches and he'd winch them up to him, to his oh, wow. attic. In a basket, <laughs> up in to the basket. window. Exactly. <laughs> what he very quickly does, he comes up with a way of automating a known plain text attack on Enigma. And this leads to what we call the bomb machine. 
Right. Yes, um, the bomb machine. Tell us about the bomb machine. Bomb machine is an electromechanical machine. I don't know if Erica knows the dimensions. It's about the size of a big wardrobe. Let's say that. <laughs> Yeah, let's keep it as accurate yeah. as that. Big wardrobe. Okay. Picture in your mind. Okay. It's got wheels on the front that go round and round. What it does is it does part of the code-breaking process for you. If you've got a good crib as to what an Enigma message contains, you can plug up your bomb machine to test the possible rotor positions of the Enigma and hopefully give you a correct result. So it doesn't automate the whole process. You can't feed it traffic and it sort of prints out plain text German. Okay. But it does a very important part of the process and it does it much quicker than a human being can do it, so it saves you a lot of time. They don't have these bomb machines at the beginning, but later on they're very, very dependent on them. And eventually they build about 200 of these in the UK. Wow. It's a massive industrial scale operation again. Um, about 100 of them in the US as well, because the Americans get involved in this program. Do they? And a bit later on, classic Americans. You need 300 machines to break all the ciphers you're having to break every day to break them quickly enough because it takes about 20 minutes to do a test on a bomb machine. So, the, so you can only do a certain number every day. So you've got about 100 by the end, did you say? 300. 300. 300 wardrobe side cassette looking things, spinning discs. Not just at Bletchley Park because obviously space. Yeah, sure. So they had to set up outstations in a uh, local area and just beyond sort of North London area in the UK in order to house a number of these machines and purpose built places were set up and established and peopled by the Women's Royal Naval Service and engineers and technicians and so on um, just to operate this 24-7 constant industrial process. So that was the number one thing you did? Yeah. Number two is work on the German naval enigma. As I say, it's more complicated than other versions of Enigma. Turing takes on this challenge at the start of the war. It seems mostly because he thought it was interesting and he could have it to himself because nobody else was working on it. He likes the challenge, certainly, did did Turing. He was definitely a problem solver. And so he does very important work understanding how those German naval procedures work, which underpin how they break naval Enigma later in the war. Number three is that he leads the section doing that job after they've made some progress. A section called Hut 8. He's in charge of that. And a bit later on in the war, Turing doesn't stay in Hut 8. He doesn't actually stay at Bletchley Park for the entire war. Okay. Because he's more of a problem solver than a manager. Once they've got the ball rolling and they're breaking this traffic every day, yeah. he sort of he's like, flying, flying Yeah. Keep going. And he finds other challenges to move on to. But before he leaves Bletchley, he does a bit of work on a new cipher they've just discovered called Lorenz. This is one of those other cipher machines which is even more complex than Enigma. And it's being used by the German High Command. He comes up with a technique they call Turingery. They Turingery. have Turingery. It's a bit of a habit of the people that were working here to name a particular procedure that they've developed, a co-breaking procedure, by the name of the person that developed it or invented it. Sure. And so there's, yeah, Bamberismus and Turingismus and Turingery and, yeah. So Turingery is a basic, it's a a fundamental technique to breaking the Lorenz cipher, which is later the work that leads to the creation of the first computers, which we use at Bletchley Park, known as Colossus. So the bomb machine, the misconception about the bomb machine is that it's a computer. It's not a computer, it only does one job. Colossus is also designed as a single purpose code-breaking machine to do one job. But in the way it's designed because it's versatile, it turns out you can program it to do other things. And that's when you make the step from single purpose electromechanical machines into something we can start recognizing as a computer. So that is the definition between a machine and a computer is multi-purpose. Is, that's how I draw the line. That's how yes. you do. I will okay. interject here though and say Turing did not invent Colossus. That is a misunderstanding or a myth that people connect his name very strongly with Colossus, the first large scale electronic digital computer. 
um, of which there were 10 here at Bletchley at the end of the war. Um, Turing was involved in its initial, I suppose, the, the thinking behind it and the thinking behind its invention. But he was gone in 1943, I suppose, from Bletchley Park. Um, and it was those later years of the war where Colossus was developed by the GPO and the teams here at Bletchley. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Turing is part of a real mix of, of people all having similar ideas about how you might automate computation. Uh, people like Max Newman, if you're informed about computer science, you'll have heard of Max Newman's work on early computing, I, and he I, also I, works I'm at Bletchley not, Park. Not. <laughs> <laughs> a name sure. to remember then in that sure, case. Yeah, a very important figure alongside okay. Turing in, the, in this field. Yeah, we're huge fans. History. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. cool. What was Turing's reputation around the house like? You say he was also a manager, so was he not a people person? He wasn't a massive people person, no. He wasn't particularly capable at organising people. In the loft, wheeling up his sandwiches again. Well, he was in Hut 8. He was the head of Hut 8, but his assistant, Hugh Alexander, in Hut 8 was generally more of the the people organiser and actually became the head of Hut 8 after Turing left. He had a relationship with one of the other codebreakers here, Joan Clark, as represented by Kira Knightley in the film. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so they were engaged for a brief period of time. And that was allowed? That was fine? That was not scandalous? Being engaged to a woman was fine, yes. Well, and also, isn't that sort of it not what he was actually into? Which he did reveal to her fairly on, and that's what broke the engagement. Right. There is a, a really interesting uh, interview with Joan Clark in her later years. It's out there on, on YouTube or uh, other websites with videos are available. Um, but there is a wonderful video of her, and she talks briefly about um, the engagement and her relationship with Joan, but she's very tight-lipped about it as well even in the later years she just doesn't want to go into too much personal detail and I think that's typical of people in that era as well they weren't going to be telling everybody about their feelings yeah I think in that era yes I can see that he, he um 
he sort of met quite a sad end though, didn't he? Considering all he did for everything, it was pretty horrible what happened to him. If you want to talk through that. Well, post Bletchley Park, he obviously went on to this incredible career in the nascent field of computing and computer science. Hugely successful, internationally successful as well. He was working this in America. This is his first well. period of fame, actually, because he's well known as the man who designed the electronic brain in the early 50s. He's quite famous. So yeah. not just a Bletchley and Park name. And respected and revered and like, thank you for doing that. Absolutely. And so then went, oh, he's gay. Yes. Yeah, so. Scrub all that. So there was this this incident where he was looked into by the police and it was discovered and he was then um, tried and convicted for gross indecency, I think it was at the time, was the terminology. It's so mad that a guy who has been so pivotal in taking down the Nazis who was sort of exterminating a minority and then gets found out to be this minority group then gets treated so badly that it's so inhumane. It's such a contradiction in... And we find it shocking today. And of course, he's not the only person that was treated in this way. You know, many, many people, many men were treated in that way as well in, in that day. And it, for us today, it's just inconceivable that people could be treated in that way. So, uh, yeah. He was arrested for gross indecency, which was illegal at the time. And he did plead guilty to gross indecency. And this is the interesting thing. He doesn't try and defend himself particularly. There are people around him who don't want him to do that, of course, who want him to take the easy way out. But he never apologises for what he did or pretends it didn't happen. Is that because he said, is he basically going, because I don't feel it is gruesome decency. Exactly. I feel like I yeah. am who I am. He and... felt, he knew exactly who he was. Yeah. And he was, he was not going to make any apologies for that. But it's worth noting, he's not entirely hung out by the establishment because there are establishment figures, especially from the intelligence services, who help him out during his trial. People yeah. like Hugh Alexander, his former colleague at Bletchley, people like Max Newman, speak in his defence as character witnesses. And this is one of the reasons why he is given what is considered the more lenient sentence of the castration treatment. What was the because in prison. Right. This way he got, he, he got to carry on with his work. He had to go through this castration treatment for a, a, a year or two, and then he could get on with his life. Wow. And we don't know precisely what the circumstances behind his death. The fact is that he'd finished the treatment about a year before he died... And we don't really know what led to his suicide, if it was a suicide. Mm. There's In no the record term. of his state of mind. There's no journal or anything like that. And just to the castration, is it a the, he takes a medicine that it was a, it's a hormonal treatment to um, reduce libido, as I understand it. Right. So just to stop him. Oh, oh God. Yeah, it's not nice. And then so and he stops that just the year before he then uh, he ends up. Committing suicide. We know he's dead from cyanide poisoning, but whether he did that to himself intentionally or whether it was an accident... Conspiracy theories abound. Yeah. Really? Yes. The the evidence just isn't out there to be conclusive. Um, His nephew, Dermot Turing, has written a lot about this case. He's tried to give a more balanced account of what happened compared to what most people know is that he was kind of uh, persecuted by the establishment. But he concludes that we don't know what lay behind his suicide if it was a suicide. There are things we just won't know. makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. 
that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The secrets of Bletchley were held undercover for a long time after the war. It's only until the sort of 70s that things start drip, drip, dripping out. How do they start making their way to the surface? Where were the, what were the first few ones that let slip? How did it all eventually get undercovered? Well, all, I say, as much as we'll ever know. There are hints that start coming out. I mean, more as well in the late 60s and, and the early 70s. Okay. There are accounts from the Polish. It's known that they broke Enigma before the war. There are accounts from the French who were involved in this process of passing information back and forth. And it seems like there are researchers who are tiptoeing closer and closer to Britain's involvement in all of this. And that's why the authorities decide that it's going to come out sooner or later. And so they'd like there to be an authorised account of what took place. And this is when they give Frederick Winterbottom permission to publish his book, The Ultra Secret, in 1974. So who, who is uh, Winterbottom and, and yeah, what sort of character? So the problem with Fred Winterbottom is he's not a codebreaker. He worked for the Secret Intelligence Service in the war. And he's very heavily involved in intelligence and ultra intelligence, as it's called. And his job is to disseminate it to... I just love that, by the way. Ultra intelligence. Super, super, super yeah. absolutely awesome intelligence. Literally, yeah. What's more secret than top secret or most secret? <laughs> yeah. Ultra secret. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, he's in charge of getting this information to commanders who need it. But he doesn't know anything about the code-breaking process of Bletchley at all. He's completely, he's, he's completely ignorant about it. And he tries to write about it in his book and it's all wrong. Um, wow. He's seen the bomb machine at once. He describes it as a sort of bronze cabinet... Um, he can't give you any good explanation of how it works or what it does. So Winterbottom's book is the book version of the imitation game film, film. to the oh, Bletchley really, really? story. <laughs> Approximately <laughs> accurate, but not quite all the details. Oh, he speaks right, in very yeah, vague okay. terms about these smart backroom boys, as he calls them, doing this intelligent work at Bletchley, but he doesn't really give any of the good detail. Then you have a few years later when the, the dam starts to burst, some of the big code breakers start to put their stories forwards. And a notable one is Gordon Welshman in charge of Hut 6, and he publishes the Hut 6 story in the early 1980s. 
he's actually censured by the establishment at that point because he tells people not just that it was done, but how how it was done. Mm -hmm. Right, I see. He okay. loses his security clearance in the UK. He actually works in the States at that point, so he's not too bothered, but he receives a lot of flack yeah, sure. for giving too much information away. And the, the, the information about how it was done is officially classified until the late 90s, early noughties, when the actual archival material starts to be released. And this is when, this is the point where people like me can start sifting through the papers and working out what really went on. The problem was, by that point, you'd had about 20 years of people relying on a very few scant accounts by a few people who didn't have the full picture. Yeah. And right. some of them are more informed than others, but again, this compartmentalization means none of them know the whole story. And this leads to, I suppose, imbalances in the way the story is told that we're still trying to correct to the modern day. And there are things which are completely well, neglected, which we, we wish were more prominent was, yeah. in the story. I was going to ask, right now, this present day, what are the big mysteries that still remain? Like, if you could have any bit of information come up, what would you choose? From the exhibitions side that I focus on, if the, we could have a particular area of knowledge, we have the stuff that's in the archives, the sort of the formal story, the stuff that survived on paper. We have some of the uh, accounts from our veterans who are now talking, and they're obviously getting older and older. Many of them are 100 uh, uh, sort of this year. And so we have this gap of the detail, the social element, the what colour was this thing, how many people were in this room, uh, what kind of, what did you call each other? Do you remember, you know, precisely what... The, the food was like or how you felt on this day those bits of details that people have either f suppressed forgotten or just were never ever recorded we have some diaries and things like that but it's this is part of the the very very big detailed patchwork that we are piecing together that we will never be able to piece together completely so some of it has to be a bit of a detective job as well so it's as as i say it's a history mystery so tom is also a detective as well as a doctor Doctor Detective Tom. That's, that's incredible. I've got a tear in my eye. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's nice. It's very nice. Dr. Tom, Erica, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We just want to finish with a couple of questions for you two. As far as you're both concerned, personally, why do you think Bletchley Park is so special and why people should visit? I think... The story that we tell here at Bletchley Park is something that everybody understands. What took place here, you've seen some examples of the work that took place here. It have, bends yeah. your brain. It is incredible, the genius and, and the complexity of what went on here. But then when you stand back and you look at the importance, the, the sacrifice, the secret, it's something that everybody can understand and it's something that intrigues everybody even to this day. So coming to Bletchley Park gives you a bit of insight and takes you behind the curtain a bit. That's funny saying that because, Dr Tom, you were telling me that actually one of the things you find weird about visitors coming here is they enjoy not learning about stuff. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, people seem to be quite happy to leave not really understanding what happened here which makes me a little bit sad because I want them to understand what happened yeah. here. And I think it is within, the, within the, the, the abilities of most people to grasp some of what happened here. Yeah. I was always terrible at maths at school. It was just a, a lesson designed to um, torture me in mm -hmm. the most horrible way possible because I didn't understand why any of it mattered or what the practical benefit of any of it was. That was never explained to me at all. But we have now thousands of school kids coming to Bletchley Park every year, seeing firsthand how important maths and STEM skills more broadly can be, how useful they can be in a real practical sense. 
hopefully being inspired to go and learn more about it when they get home, hopefully leading on to interesting careers. And I just wonder what might have been if I came to Bletchley and had a hands-on experience with Enigma machine when I was seven or eight, what might have been? Would I be a historian or would I be doing something else? Even older than that, I loathed maths at school, absolutely hated it. But if somebody would said to me, you young girl, if you continued with maths and really took an interest, you could be a code breaker. I would have absolutely suddenly changed my mind completely. It's a lot cooler, isn't it? Very cool. So that's it. Any listeners out there who have kids who they would like to become mathematicians and code breakers, bring them to Bletchley immediately. But if either of you two had to pick somewhere beside Bletchley Park, as far as a stately home, castle, manor house, or building of note, which would be one of your favourites? The first place that comes to mind is the Churchill Wall Rooms. I was going to say exactly the same um, thing. Yeah, okay. Possibly because we've had privileged access there and managed to go behind the glass. And again, that is the sort of sense of it happened here. And also the fact in that case that it's completely untouched for decades until it was reopened. And you literally have the same papers on the same desks the same pins in the same cork uh, boards on the walls. Maps on the walls with pinholes that were created in the 1940s. It's very, very special. But mm-hmm. it's also a great counterpoint to Bletchley because this is a place where important stuff is done, but they're not making decisions here. That happens in other places like down in London. And you make a really good point. And sorry to quote the musical Hamilton, but um, being in the room where it happened is so exciting and just to walk around and feel the vibe and the phrase it happened here is one we use here all the time at Bletchley Park if you were to go back to any moment in history well, when would it be I'm going to be controversial here as a, a heritage professional you may have noticed I'm a woman and uh, women yeah. haven't had it great in history no. I would say up until quite recently. So I'm very much, if I had to travel back into time, into a particular historical era, I'd say, no, thank you. I'm very happy where <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, happy, yeah. As a privileged man. <laughs> um, What's that like? <laughs> I'm not going to make the mistake of saying, send me to the first day of the Battle of the Somme, because as fascinating as it would be, I probably wouldn't enjoy the experience very much. Sure. Um, I'd like to, professionally speaking, go to the stable yard at Bletchley Park sometime in September, October 1939 and find out what is going on in the bungalow as far as their contraptions for breaking Enigma. Because there are, there, they do have a, a workshop for gadgets. That is, literally, that description is all we know about what went on in that building. We don't know what these gadgets were or what they were doing. And um, I'd love to know that it's such an important part of the story. So early on in the story, we have so little information about it. So I'd like to fill that gap in, in my knowledge, certainly. So staying at Bletchley then, if you were to meet one character from Bletchley's history, who would you choose? John Tiltman, hands down. The man seems to have achieved so much in his life. He's also very uh, under-recognised. He was working from the First World War right through to working here as chief cryptographer in the Second World War. But then after he retired in British intelligence, moved to America and worked for the NSA until he was really quite elderly. And so the man was a lifelong intelligence genius and also seems to have been a really good bloke. It seems to be that people view Bletchley Park as modern history, but it's still history and history that 
doesn't live in the living memory of, of very many people still. We're lucky enough to be able to speak to and interview some of our very elderly veterans that have that first-hand knowledge, but more and more it's, it's drifting away now. Well, that's it. Well, how many more years have we got left until there isn't a living person the, from that time? I mean, there were young people working here. Messengers were 13, 14, um, people working 17, 18, 19 years old, but even those now are very elderly people, with many of them incredibly, I don't like to use the word spry, but that is very descriptive of how they are, very energetic still, dynamic people. But even so, there's not a lot of years left for it to be memory. It starts to become history. A touching reminder there that it's important to capture the stories of these brave men and women while we still can and learn the real story, not just rely on the Hollywood version, even if they do get their hair right. That's it for this episode. Until next time, crack your codes, zip your lips and mind your manners. Thanks for listening to Bad Manners. If you like the pod, please share it with your friends. Rate it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and make sure you spill the tea on any of your favourite Bad Manners that we could feature in future episodes. This podcast was produced by Atomize Studios for iHeartRadio. It was hosted by me, Tom Horton. It was produced by Willa Malensky, Rebecca Rappaport, and Chris Attaway. It was executive produced by Faye Stewart and Zad Rogers. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore and our production coordinator is Bella Salini. Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.